Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting May 30th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we're going to talk about incredibly simple technology, boxes and windows. But the box in question effectively shrank the world. It's the cargo container that goes seamlessly from rail to ship to truck. We'll talk with Arthur Donovan about that. And the windows are the smartest ones I've ever seen and will soon be letting the light shine on lemurs at the Bronx Zoo. We'll talk to Paul Taponia about them. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Arthur Donovan. He's Professor Emeritus of Maritime History at the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy in Kings Point, New York. He's also the co-author of a book about the history of cargo containerization. Last week, he lectured on that subject at the New York Public Library Science, Industry, and Business Branch. I went to his talk and then caught up with him at the library for a brief chat. Professor Donovan, good to talk to you. Nice to see you, too. Tell us about, first of all, the name of the book is The Box That Changed the World. What is the box? The box is the standard shipping container, which is now used universally around the world in what we call intermodal transportation. That is to say, you can load up the box, a strong steel box, so usually about uh, eight and a half by eight and a half by 40 feet, and you can move it on a truck, and without unpacking it, you can put it on a ship and take it to a port, and there it can be put on a rail car, and it's only opened when it finally gets to its last destination. And the box did not always exist, though. When did the box come about? Well... The box that we use today and refer to is really uh, a, an adaptation of a standard truck trailer size. In fact, its initial dimensions were set by road regulations on uh, truck trailer size. But the box had to be built more strongly when it was uh, decided to move it on ships where you have a lot of motion and it has to be attached firmly to the ship and it has to be stronger to be uh, lifted and bear uh, the ocean motion. And there's this fellow McLean who you talk about a lot. Who who was McLean and and what's his role in this? Well, Malcolm McLean was a very successful trucker uh, from North Carolina who started in Maxton, North Carolina, his hometown, uh, struggled through the Depression, nursed his company through the war, is a small trucking company, and uh, then started expanding after the war. He moved very quickly um, and uh, was based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina at that time, and extended his roots. And by the early 50s, he was quite a national figure in trucking. Uh, he was, uh, I think, the second largest uh, trucking company along the East Coast, and he was turning terrific uh, profits. But for some reason, which I think uh, I can identify, he thought that the future of trucking was not so good. He thought he could find a cheaper way uh, to move his boxes, uh, and he, um, he decided that he would try and move them along the coast. In fact, he first tried to uh, get a railroad to carry them in what we call piggyback uh, manner, that is to say a truck trailer still on its chassis attached to a flat car on a railroad. But the railroads in the, uh, after the war had their own problems, and they lacked the kind of flexibility he would have needed. 
And also they felt themselves to be competing directly with the trucking companies and they hoped to drive them off the field, essentially. So the railroads were not interested in helping McLean. So the other option was to move to a shipboard movement of uh, trailers. And moving freight by sea is by far the most economical way to do it because you don't have to build the surface you're traveling on. And so he made up his mind, and in 1954, he informed his uh, northeast sales staff that he was going to go into what came to be called containerization, um, and he moved forward with great dispatch, and in April 1956, he loaded the first ship he had prepared to carry uh, containers uh, at Port Newark, and it carried 58 boxes, as we refer to them, uh, as he liked to say, always say, uh, loaded with paying cargo uh, to Houston, Texas. And uh, those boxes were put ashore in a couple of hours. In a few more hours, the boxes waiting to be shipped to New York were loaded on board, and he turned that ship around within a day. Which and how did that, uh, how was that different from what the previous experience had been with the kind of sure uh, unloading and loading that you see in movies like on the waterfront. Right. The previous form of cargo handling was called break bulk because each item, each bag, barrel, box was handled and, and placed and, and shored up in the hold. Uh, break bulk shipping required uh, uh, anywhere from four to six days to uh, uh, load a standard size uh, cargo ship. So it was the utilization of the capital asset, you might say, that was so impressive. The ship was earning uh, at a much higher percentage of its life when it was carrying containers than when it was being loaded and unloaded brake bulk. Because with brake bulk, what what percent of the time is the ship actually moving cargo? Well, uh, roughly 50%. I mean, you can give or take a little, but uh, it's spending about 50% of its time alongside a dock loading and unloading and 50% of its uh, time moving cargo, which is what the company's being paid for. And uh, with with uh, the containers, it's more than 90% of the time that you're moving. Uh, ballpark, yeah, right. You're, you're earning about 90% of the time, and that's earning to retire the capital cost of the big asset. Talk for a minute about the year 1956 and, and how important it was because of the this convergence of events that happened. Uh, this is a thought that came to me quite recently, and of course one's always intoxicated by one's most recent ideas. Um, I was noting uh, that there were two major transportation anniversaries in 2006, 50-year anniversaries. One was the anniversary of the uh, first uh, uh, container ship uh, voyage, and the other, quite unrelated and never connected, so far as I can tell, was the 50th anniversary of the Federal Interstate Highway Act. But if you think of McLean's uh, initiative in containerization as moving trailers by other means, why did he feel he had to move them by other means? He had been successful. Well, then I recalled that he once reported that his over-the-road costs had increased 50% in one year. Now, if you connect that to the crumbling state of the state highway system 
as opposed to the non-existent federal highway system, uh, and the post-war reluctance to invest heavily in roads, uh, which President Eisenhower addressed directly, um, maybe the two are linked. So I'm, I'm playing with the idea that the beginning of containerization and the passage of the uh, Federal Interstate Highway Act are in fact intimately related to the same cause, the decay of the existing road system. Talk for just a moment about the uh, the reaction of one recipient. You talked about uh, a shipment of Scotch whiskey that had come over from Scotland and the reaction of the recipients of that shipment at the distillery here in the U.S. Well, it was a Kentucky distiller who was also handling imported uh spirits, and uh, he was simply struck by the fact that prior to containerization, uh, his uh, shipments of uh, scotch were often broken into, uh, partially destroyed, and they could just salvage a percentage, not a high percentage, of the shipment for sale, and they, they had to patch up what they received. There's a scene in On the Waterfront where you can see what was happening to shipments of scotch, which were much prized by the longshoremen. Uh, then in 1966, the year in which Malcolm McLean uh, sent his first container ships to northern Europe, uh, this man wrote to McLean and said, our first shipment sent in a container arrived in perfect shape, ready for sale. Um, what McLean did, I think he had an eye on this market, because he had his container ship stop at a port in Scotland just to pick up Scotch whiskey. Uh, it wasn't any large uh, order there, but uh, that was much appreciated by the uh, uh, spirits distributors in America. And uh, you also mentioned, we recently on the podcast did a, an episode about beer science. One of the things you mentioned in your talk was how the... Uh, the current availability of beers from all over the world is directly, and at a cheap price, is directly related to uh, this this form of shipment availability. Oh, right. Um, the, I mean, it used to be that you had local breweries, and sometimes for the big national brands, you'd have uh, regional breweries, you know, Budweiser and all. But you didn't move beer very far. Uh, you drank at the national brand brewed nearby or the local brands. Um, I really don't know what one did if one got hungry or thirsty for a, a British beer or a, a Danish beer or whatever. Um, but with containerization, the cost of moving beer from anywhere to anywhere else around the world has fallen to a very small percentage of the final price. And so I think you can see this. My little experiment was to ask the salesman in the local beer barn what the what the cost was for beers from different places around the world, and it turned out, you know, a six pack of standard beer was uh, very similar, uh, very close. And uh, I also looked around and noted that there were not the stacks of standard beers uh, that filled the beer barn, uh, but rather small quantities of hundreds of different beers. The variety is enormous. I'm not sure the variety of the beer is that great, but the variety of labels <laughs> is enormous. And uh, it's because the transportation cost, if you think of cost as the distance of transporting goods, then 
cost has declined enormously. We live on a very small planet in terms of the cost of distance, not the linear measure of distance. Right. One of the other figures you had was a $45 pair of shoes costs 34 cents to ship. Right. Now, that was ocean shipping. There's a little more added at each end. But even there, there's much higher efficiency now. So the, the total cost is still in that ballpark. The common culture of consumption is, I think, how you put the uh, the result of the containers and, and what they've done to uh, to the worldwide markets. Well, yes. Uh, I mean, we do have world production and world consumption, which I think means you never know where it's made and you never know where it's going to be used. In this sense, I think that um, Marshall McLuhan's notion of a global village has been uh, extended, if you like, because he was talking mostly about media, but it's been extended to products and to production. Um, and uh, so in, in this sense of globalization, globalization depends on uh, containerization. It's a fascinating subject. Uh, Dr. Donovan, thanks very much. You're quite welcome. By the way, during Donovan's talk, he put up a table of numbers of containers shipped to the U.S. in the year 2004 for various companies, and the leader, which will be no surprise, was Walmart, which received how many shipped containers? I'll give you a second to ponder that while I tell you that Donovan's book, The Box That Changed the World, was co-authored with Joseph Bonney, the editor of the Journal of Commerce. The book is available through that journal's website, www.joc.com. And in 2004, Walmart's imports filled... 576,000 containers. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, a cow has been genetically modified to give strawberry-flavored milk. Story two, over 100 children had half their brains removed at Johns Hopkins between 1975 and 2001. Story three, astronomers have discovered an entirely new class of stellar explosion bigger than a nova but smaller than a supernova. And story four, consuming a high-fat diet can pose a heavy additional risk for users of the drug ecstasy. We'll be back with the answer, but first, the Bronx Zoo is renovating one of its classic old buildings, the Lion House. It used to contain, you guessed it, lads right lions and other big cats. For the last few decades, however, it's been used for office space with the big cats enjoying the outdoors. Now the building is being transformed into a new Madagascar exhibit. And a couple of weeks ago, a few journalists were invited on a site tour. I went on the tour, after which I spoke to one of the architects involved in the renovation, Paul Taponia. Now, the buildings will be totally green with geothermal thermal heating and cooling, gray water storage and filtration bathrooms, other amenities. But without throwing the baby lemurs out the windows with the gray water, here's a short conversation I had with Deponia about something I wanted to shed more light on. Mr. Deponia, good to talk to you today. Good to meet you too. The really interesting thing to me about the, the whole restoration is, uh, is the skylights. These skylights have been used in Europe, uh, specifically in Germany, for about 25, 30 years. And uh, they're quite commonplace in museums, um, zoos, aquariums. Uh, what they are is, um, the uh, shorthand is ETFE, which stands for ethylene tetrafluorethylene. Um, they're put out by a company called Foiltech. Uh, they're German, but they have a North American um, wing. Uh, Foiltech North America runs out of Albany. Uh, they helped us very early in the design to um, 
sort of size them uh, to also uh, engineer them because we have two types of uh, skylights on this project, both by Foiltech. The first type is a static system, which is basically, um, think of them as pillows. They're sort of the pillow case without the pillow. They're inflatable plastic um, volumes that are retained in anything from a rectangular, square, or trapezoidal frame. And they're pumped full of, of air with with pneumatic um, pneumatic piping. Uh, basically, you add air um, at the top, and it trickles out the bottom over time. So we have static over the exhibits that uh, need not be controlled from a solar gain point of view, but over a spiny forest, which is a, a very hot, dry environment. We have a dynamic skylight system whereby the there's a middle layer, there's a third middle layer that moves, and it moves because you can introduce air above or below that middle layer and push it up or down. And by aligning a frit pattern, which is little dots on the surface that's printed on the surface, by aligning those dots together in a collapsed fashion, you actually uh, you actually screen the sunlight. And then if you if you pull them apart, it lets the sunlight in. So you're basically almost like filtering sunlight through leaves on a tree. Um, it's linked to the building management system in that if the space gets too hot, you pump air into the into the into the these pillow skylights and it it collapses the top and the middle layer and it screens the sun and then when it cools off it opens up again so they have some intelligence to them and then if it gets very very hot there's actually three um exhaust uh, hatches in the uppermost roof which are also foil tech that basically just purge the hottest air and then those close as well the building management system is that computerized, so this will all happen automatically. It's uh, entirely computerized through a series of centralized computers. Um, it controls the foil tech skylights, and it controls all the lighting, all the temperature sensors, um, and basically it's it's all set up ahead of time, and it runs programs for each and every space. So, the rainforest is different than the desert. The desert's different than the highlands, the lowlands, and then there's also a whole zone for the human, you know, visitors. So again, these these uh, skylights, they can be inflated or compressed, basically, and that that layer of air will act as insulation or won't be there. Yeah, and then you also have the fritz that line up so you can either let UV in or reflect UV so that you don't get greenhouse heating within the building when you don't want it. That, that's correct, although it, there's a twist with these skylights in that the animals need the UV radiation. Usually we're trying to reject the UV radiation. In this project, we're letting it in on purpose because the animals need it um, to live uh, a healthy life. So it's, it's a, a, a real design challenge in that you have to let it in, but then at a certain point, you'll get, there's a tipping point temperature-wise, and then the, the skylights will be able to reject, reject the UV for a certain amount of time until the space recovers, and then we go back to the normal cycle. So there are unique challenges for a building that's going to house animals and people. Absolutely, and uh, most buildings that don't have animals but only human occupants, uh, we're doing very different things, but here uh, that was turned upside down and still we had to um, adjust, so this technology helps us to do that. Believe it or not, the architecture firm turning the Bronx Zoo's lion house into the Madagascar exhibit used to be called Fox and Fowl, and now they're FX Fowl at www.fxfowle.com. 
Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, cow gives strawberry flavored milk. Story two, over 100 kids had half their brains removed at Hopkins. Story three, a new type of stellar explosion discovered. Story four, ecstasy poses additional risk for those on high fat diets. Time's up. Story four is true. People on high fat diets who use ecstasy face an additional health risk, possibly lethal overheating. From overeating to overheating. That's according to a study in the British Journal of Pharmacology. Most deaths related to ecstasy use are related to overheating that causes organ failure. The circumstances of ecstasy use increase the risk as the drug is popular in crowded clubs where people can easily become dehydrated by dancing and alcohol use. And a high-fat diet appears to raise blood levels of fatty acids, which can impede body temperature regulation. For more, see the May 29th article at the Siam website called High-Fat Diet May Increase Ecstasy ecstasy danger. Story three is true. Astronomers have indeed seen the remnants of a previously unknown kind of stellar explosion. That's according to a report in the journal Nature. The explosion, which took place in the galaxy Messier 85, was too faint to be a supernova, in which a star literally explodes, but it was too bright to be a regular old nova, or a thermonuclear explosion from the surface of a white dwarf star. So what was it? It looks like the big boom was caused when two ordinary stars crashed into each other some 49 million years ago. Let's hope it was a no-fault galaxy. Story two is true. Between 1975 and 2001, more than 111 children had one of their brain's two hemispheres completely removed. The drastic surgery stops frequent seizures. You can read more about this very odd subject in a May 24th story in the Weird Science section of the Siam website called When Half a Brain is Better Than a Whole One. Just go to Siam.com and hit the link for Weird Science. Said one neurologist quoted in the story, You can't take more than half. If you take the whole thing, you've got a problem. All of which means that story one about the cow that gives strawberry-flavored milk is, of course, totally bogus. But what is true is that a cow in New Zealand actually does give skim milk. The cow was bred by a company called Via Lactea, according to a United Press International report. The cow was actually found to be successfully producing low-fat milk back in 2001, but it's now been confirmed that the trait can be passed along to the cow's, no doubt, skinny calves. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Scientific American Podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. Check out news articles at the website, www.siam.com. The Daily Siam Podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.